You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcasts, Episode 3. Cora Hiltz, Rivon Ver, the home of sustainable luxury fashion. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcasts, a series of thought-provoking conversations with the people behind businesses and brands that make a difference. I'm your host, Jodie Muta-Hamilton, and I'll be getting to know visionaries who are at the forefront of fashion tech and ethical style. I'll also be exploring our relationship with technology and the impact it has on craftsmanship within the fashion industry. I believe the future of fashion is to find a holistic approach that harnesses technology whilst keeping crafts alive, to push the boundaries of possibility, and to support each other to create businesses that can provide growth without harm. I hope listening to our discussions inspire you to be the change, start the business you've dreamed of, discover new ways of thinking, and connect with other like-minded people who are doing something in their own vision to make a difference. Come on the journey with me, keep listening, subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud, join the conversation via Instagram, at Black Neon Digital, Twitter, at Digital Neon, and our website, blackneondigital.com. Rivon Ver was founded in 2013 by Cora Hiltz and Natasha Tucker, and was born from a blog that Cora started during her master's course in environmental politics and sustainability. Rivon Ver has been referred to as the netter porter of sustainable fashion. Without the same resources of a large online company, they've managed to create a successful, thriving business selling clothing which in the past has had a brand perception issue. In this interview, we'll learn how Cora and Natasha have been instrumental in making luxury synonymous with sustainability, how they make their business work, and what they look for in the brands that they work with. Thank you so much for joining us today on this lovely sunny day in London. Um, just to get into a little bit about how you started Revonvert, um, you have a background in environmental politics and sustainability, which is not the natural route to fashion. <laughs> no. Um, could you tell us a bit about this and how you came to meet each other and the decision to start an online fashion company? Yeah, of course. So, um, before London, I lived in Paris for a while, which is where I actually started working in fashion and promptly decided it was not for me. Um, so moved to London and got my master's in environmental politics and sustainability. But at the time, I was in a lecture and my professor mentioned that, you know, behind the energy sector, which is what I was looking to get into, fashion was the second most polluting industry on earth. Um and it was really a eureka moment for me, I would say. I I realized just how atrocious that was. And it was something that we didn't kind of consider as detrimental fashion. It was meant to be beautiful and luxurious. Um, and also it was an entirely privatized industry. So therefore, regulation would always be difficult. And I just saw this opportunity to use fashion as the medium for change environmentally and socially. And really, you know, I was struggling Um a lot to talk about sustainability in my everyday life. Um, you know, I finish up at King's where I was getting my master's and go meet my girlfriends for wine. And, you know, nobody wants to talk about the uh, melting ice caps or climate change over some rosé, which, you know, understandably so. Um, 
and fashion really seemed like the kind of medium I could use to start having these conversations in a little bit more of a natural way. So the idea for Revon Vert was really born at that time when I was like, well, listen, if people didn't have to sacrifice style for ethics, if they could shop in the way that they do at a Net-A-Porter or a Farfetch where everything is curated and beautiful and, and easy to purchase, I really think it would be the natural choice to actually buy that sustainably and ethically if it were possible. So the idea of an ethical version of Net-A-Porter emerged in my mind and I started the company and getting the foundations together. Natasha and I had been friends um, for ages. I knew her little sister from Bermuda and we reconnected here in London and in all honesty, we were out um, having dinner one night and, you know, a couple bottles of wine later, I was telling her about this idea and Natasha said, you know, I, I'm that consumer, you know, I'm that, that girl, I would love to shop better and I didn't know the fashion industry was so bad and she'd been working on organic farm in Bermuda, she wanted to do something with sustainability and food but it kind of ended up in an office job just you know, as, as you do. And she was like, you know, (laughs) we should do this together. And I was like, well, I'd love a business partner. And, you know, we went to bed all jolly and two bottles of wine in. And the next morning she called me and was like, I was, I was serious. I, I would be willing to quit my job and, and do this with you. So that was how it was born really. Yeah. Quite naturally. And I would say that eco green, sustainable, ethical products, still have a branding issue, yeah. particularly in the fashion context. From the outset, how have you tackled this? And was the word sustainable chosen over the ethical for a particular reason? Like, was there a lot of thought about that word in particular? So much thought was put into the <laughs> language of this. And at the beginning, we worked with consultants and various people who told us definitively do not use sustainable in any of your marketing because you know, this was four years ago when people were not talking about sustainability within luxury fashion. And we really had to stick with our guns in terms of that word, because we were like, well, what's the point of doing this otherwise? If we're putting it to the background, we're just another company that's kind of addressing it, but not really. And I think that confuses consumers. I really think that we need to be quite clear about our end game here. And that is achieving sustainability within fashion. So we've learned to not shy away from that word. And I think why we chose it over ethical was I feel like sustainability to me means longevity. It means an actual solution to a problem, whereas ethical kind of seems a bit preachy. It can be taken in so many different ways. Like, you know, we can debate whether or not vegan leather is more ethical than upcycled leather, but inherently sustainability means coming up with the choice that's least harming to the earth and people and for the future it's kind of got a future future. vision precisely you know we have vegan leather on the site but you know if I were going to say what's the more sustainable option I would actually probably say upcycled leather because it's a byproduct of something that's already been made or an animal that's already been killed even though you know I don't eat meat I see the more sustainable option of having upcycled leather um so Yeah, so that's how we chose that phrase. And I do think in terms of the branding, um, what's been the most difficult process is the fact that we put aesthetics over ethics in our buying selection. So we've gotten approached by so many brands who are so sustainable and ethical and considered in their manufacturing processes, but they don't look fashion. And 
I know that sounds a bit brutal, but the whole point was that we wanted someone who would shop at Matches or Net-A-Porter or Farfetch to come onto Revon Vert and, and see that they could shop just like that, but sustainably. And if you kind of put those very cliched versions of ethical fashion up on a site it's fine but it's going for a different demographic and we've had to be very considered in who our demographic was and really sell to those people um because you know you can want to sell to everyone but that's just not a reality in a business unfortunately so we've chosen it was always sustainable luxury fashion so we've chosen to really work in the luxury sphere yeah yeah it's hard to to get that balance and like not be sort of hippie clothes and still be luxury and and yeah drawing the lines probably pretty difficult for you exactly guys. we didn't want like a girl in a white dress running yeah. through a field yeah. I mean it, we could have done but it just wasn't us and it wasn't what Revon Vert was meant yeah. to be yeah also there are um, so many brands who work with social justice organizations to create products Often they deal with pretty hard-hitting issues such as people, victims affected by trauma, anti-trafficking, exploitation, victims of rape and abuse. Um, Thinking about these sorts of brands and organisations, in buying products we feel we're helping and giving back to charity, but on the other hand, we don't necessarily associate this same feeling with luxury and a luxury Mm. experience. How do you feel the two work together and do you stock any brands that focus on this kind of social justice mission? Yeah, so I've always said that fashion confused me because it's supposed to be at the forefront of everything, right? Fashion's meant to push boundaries, it's meant to be forward thinking, it's meant to be very cool. And those are all the same things I put with social justice. I think the fact that fashion has not taken more into account is actually quite bizarre because you've got people that you know have a real ability to make impact you have a real voice when you're a top fashion designer and you've got all these influences under your belt to talk about these things and make a positive change and the fact that so many people still choose to not is inherently confusing to me Mm. I don't really get it um so with Revon Vert we saw an opportunity to Exactly. Start telling these stories in a way that hopefully would get people excited about purchasing um, luxury fashion and and make luxury fashion synonymous with good business practices and giving back. So we work, I would say the best example of a brand I've come across is not one that we stock yet, but it's called Outland Denim. It's an Australian company, which is why we don't stock them. Actually, it's a little bit hard with them, the shipping, all the shipping and imports and whatnot. But You know, we met the woman who started it when she was here in London, and it's quite a phenomenal story. It's They are the only denim company that pay not only a fair living wage to their workers, but go above and beyond to make sure that all of their workers have human rights, yes, but also have human advantages, that they are women that are able to afford to buy their own house, that they can, you know, provide for their families, that they could even give back in the community. And what they're finding after only a couple of years of doing this is where women have gotten money and empowerment, they've fed that back into their local communities and really created change. Um, you know, not to have a total feminist moment, but they've found, and I used to study this in, in my master's, when you give women money, they really do put it back and they really invest it in the future of their children, communities, etc. Men tend to be slightly more selfish with it. So 
they are using women who've come from, you know, horrible backgrounds, just really had to struggle. And, and they're finding that once they are given these advantages, they really do amazing things with them. So that's the sort of company. And, and the jeans are wonderful. They're high end. They look like anything you would buy at Selfridges, et cetera. Um, and you know, you, you look at that and it just makes sense. You know, you're like, why wouldn't you? I mean, of course their margins are probably slightly smaller, but at the same time, that's a sacrifice so willingly made when we met this woman. And I think we could all do with a little less in the world if it meant giving a bit back, especially at a time like now when we hear so much on the news and feel so helpless. It's, you know, I think there's little, there's little sacrifices in terms of finance probably go a long way for other people. And that should be considered true success. Just touching on that, then going back to politics, economics and sustainability, um, do you think it's possible to address one without the other being included? So, you know, we've already talked about how intertwined they are and, yeah, and yeah how, what's your opinion? Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Ethics is such a hard one. I mean, honestly, that's why we, we really steered away from it because everyone has a different idea of what is ethical to them. So, for instance, even Natasha and I will argue over whether or not, you know, lovingly argue, but, you know, whether or not social well-being is more important than planetary well-being. So me coming from an environmental politics background, I put the earth over everything because I don't see if there's no world, it doesn't matter about the people because inherently we need the earth to survive. Um, whereas I think Natasha is a little bit more in tune with, with people and humanity and immediate suffering. So for us, we can even have these debates and there is no clear answer which is why I think inherently when it comes to fashion, we have to be looking at sustainability in terms of supply chains, in terms of planetary resources and degradation. And also, yes, of course, the human impact of these things, because you can't talk about sustainability no. without ethics coming into play. One kind of interlinks to the other. You can't leave them separate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. With that in mind, then, how do you then go on to choose which brands you work with, um, like how do you choose one brand over another? In the end, does it come down to brand aesthetics, marketing, social following, or do you pick the best pieces from each brand? Like one might make an amazing bra, the other yeah. an amazing T-shirt. Um, how do you create, you know, curate your kind of... We definitely cherry pick um, throughout the brands that we do stock. So we decide to stock brands based on four tenets that we've come up with, which are organic, local, remade, and fair. And these are kind of the four things that we consider when we're looking at brands. And if they tick most of those boxes, we can pretty much say that's that's right on. Um, I don't know of any brands that are ticking all of them and 100% sustainability is incredibly hard to achieve. But all of the designers that we work with, we have spoken to, we have sat down with, we have met and know that they're on a trajectory of constant improvement and dedication to this cause. Um, so obviously that is first and foremost, but then you have the aesthetic. So all of the brands that we stock are pieces that Natasha and I would wear that we vetted through our friends and family, you know, would you be into this? Um, and really we look at classic styles as well, because inherently there's an issue with sustainability and seasonal buying. Um, probably we shouldn't be producing more. However, the reality is people are going to buy more and want something new come September. That's just, you know, a fact of economy. And 
So we're just trying to get people to buy better when they do buy. So once we see a brand that we like, we really look at, okay, if we're going to buy a jacket this season, let's make sure it's a jacket that someone would wear hopefully 10 years down the line. We always talk about the fact that, you know, some of our favorite pieces in our wardrobes are things that our grandmothers or mothers gave us. And, you know, unfortunately, if you get something you love at H&M, there's very little likelihood you're ever going to give that to your daughter. And really for us, we're looking at quality investment pieces that you would be able to hand down. And there is a sustainability story behind that. Mm-hmm. How also, how far, like how far and how deep do you go into each individual brand's kind of like ethics? So would you go as far as looking at funding, you know, like how, where they get their money from to produce <laughs> oh, God. it? I mean, you know, you can go so far, but you haven't obviously got as a business the yeah. time to dedicate a year to researching a brand. Like. No, and I think eventually we'd love to have somebody on team who's literally like deep diving into everyone's policies. We have a pretty extensive questionnaire of things um, that we ask for and look for and certification is paramount. So, you know, if you say you're organic, we need documents to show that it is got organic certified, etc. Um, I think in terms of deep diving into things say like funding... That's tricky because, you know, for instance, I read something yesterday about this, um, I believe it was a Swedish billionaire somewhere in the Nordic region. And you might look at this guy and say he's a billionaire and therefore how sustainable could his lifestyle be? However, he's just commissioned a mega yacht of his own to go through the Arctic seas and do research into plastic pollution ice cap melting, what we're doing to the oceans. And he's donated, I think it was 10 million pounds of his own money in order to facilitate this research. And so, you know, if you got funding from this self-made billionaire, would that be bad? Or this guy's kind of putting money towards interesting, innovative sustainability initiatives. So So you have to go with your gut really at the end of the day. I think so. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there. So in terms of funding, yeah. And a lot of our our designers are actually self-funded, which really makes you just know that they're so in it for the right reasons because we were self-funded at the beginning and you have to really want it in order to be, you know, God, I slept on Natasha's couch for three months at the beginning because we literally couldn't afford to pay ourselves. And yeah, but you know, you really wanted it mm, at that the point. The commitment levels there for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Would there be anything that would make it easier for you to decide, like some sort of labeling system, some uh, government-backed, you know, strategy? So like the transparency index, that kind of thing, you know, does that all help you? If there was a barcode that just scanned everything in and you didn't have to crawl and claw through the research, yeah, yeah, that would be incredibly helpful. And, uh, you know, I, being from environmental politics, I've always thought government should be more in you know, more kind of at the forefront of labeling systems and making it imperative that people are labeling their, you know, clothing and whatnot. But it's insane. You know, you see, you hear about the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh and all of those women and children dying in order to make our cheap clothes. And you're like, how is that legal? How has that not been investigated by a greater authority? But as I said, the fashion industry is just privatized. So, I do think it would be interesting. However, why I really didn't go into politics in the end was because of the bureaucracy and the amount of time it takes to get anything achieved. And I just am too impatient for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fashion is a much more sort of manageable, malleable 
kind of vehicle for exactly kind of discussion yeah, actually exactly um yeah on that when when i speak to people about sustainable fashion i often get met with the opinion that um due to the higher price point of the clothing they feel it's unaffordable mm. or to put it another way a middle class problem yeah <laughs> taking this into consideration um you've obviously chosen to operate in a luxury market how do you feel this kind of fits not necessarily directly you know, with your luxury end of the business, but as, as a whole, perhaps? I do think it's interesting because there are people that genuinely cannot afford to spend money on clothes. But then there are the people that say it's unaffordable and will go into Zara and buy five things that eventually mount up to about 150 pounds, which is our average basket order. So I don't actually think it's prohibitively expensive. And I do think people spend money on fashion. It's just what they expect to get for that money. So they don't want a sweater that will last a lifetime that costs 150 pounds. They want five things that they can wear as and when, and then throw away when it no longer behooves them. Um, I, that would be my first answer. And, you know, we've looked at producing things. I, you know, this is naughty. I'm going to finger point, but you know, I bought one of the Zara sustainable collection t-shirts cause I was interested in it. And, you know, they're all, talking about Lyocell and lifelong and, and this promise, promise of sustainability. And it came, it was wrapped in plastic. Um, it was made from Lyocell. Yes, but it felt cheap. It started to fall apart after four washes and on the tag, it said it was made in Bangladesh. So, it, you know, yes, I paid 12 quid for it and that was great. And it didn't really matter when it fell apart. But at the same time, that is absolutely at odds with sustainability. So how is that, how is that sustainable really? And unfortunately it does cost more money and, you know, you might have to save up for it or you might have to shop less and buy fewer things of quality, but that's a decision I'm hoping more and more people will make as they start realizing that, you know, the earth just cannot continue in this way of consumption. And if you do have the money, you might want to spend it a little bit more responsibly. Mm. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it would be great if all garments were sustainable, ethical, and timeless. With this idea trickling slowly down to, as you've just mentioned, like Zara, um, more and more retailers are looking to stock ethical products, whether it be just a market employee or, you know, they yeah. really genuinely want to do it. How do you as a business maintain your USP and market share when kind of this is a bit more of a trend starting to build now? Yeah. So we always talk about like, you know, the H&M Conscious Collection as a double-edged sword because on one hand, it's great that they're spreading the word about sustainability and making it more of a mainstream thing. However, I think they're really confusing people because, you know, for instance, my girlfriend was in H&M the other day and she called me and she's like, right, so I'm at H&M, I'm in the Conscious Collection and I'm actually just confused because is this good? Like I'm going to buy something that's organic, but at the same time I'm in H&M, which seems, you know, at odds with anything sustainable. So what actually is going on? And that is, I think, a question that a lot of consumers face right now. It's like, how can a fast fashion conglomerate that's opening new stores every day and shipping things, you know, in mass quantities with huge carbon footprints produce a small collection of organic garments and be truly sustainable. And I do think what we stand to, to do and will always do is be people that talk about our transparency and our sustainability very openly because we have nothing to hide. 
from the get-go, sustainability was at the core of what we did. And I hope that that rings true to consumers in a way where it's like we can stand behind everything from the dyes our designers use to the water consumption to the wages and you know rights of their workers. So that's how I would say it will differentiate. Thinking a little bit about your audience um, and your sort of consumers, how has this changed since the rise of social media and how do you actually find and target your um, yeah, your customers? Because it can be quite tricky. Yes, as we yeah. So we always had a very specific consumer in mind who was a little bit older, but it's been quite phenomenal seeing how many millennials are engaging mm. with this subject. And I can actually now totally appreciate it because the world they're facing at the moment is looking a bit bleak. And I would imagine, you know, I read a statistic the other day that this next generation coming up behind us is going to be the first generation that's 12% vegan, like a leap from, I think like 1.2% to 12%, um, which is phenomenal. And I do think that's a lot to do with this, yes, rise of healthy living and wellness, but also with the fact that we now know how detrimental the agriculture and meat industries are to the planet. I mean, you could argue that methane is the biggest issue we face now, and it comes predominantly from cattle rearing. Um, so, you know, so we're finding also when we put things on social media that are harder hitting, um, more factual, we get so much more of a response rate. And really that's coming from a younger demographic, um, who's engaging with these issues. And I think really starting to think about them, which is fabulous because when I was like 19, I wasn't thinking about these things. Um, you know, I was probably (laughs) drunk in Paris, like not thinking about them specifically and eating a steak. Um, and it's, it's really quite phenomenal to see that, that emergence. So we're really also looking at how we can recruit these younger customers we appreciate they don't probably have as much money as you know the 35 year old woman we always had in mind as being our customer but that's why we did things like in you know put on organic beauty and basic lines and things that were a little bit more you know accessible thinking thinking a little bit about the um you just mentioned wellness and long-term sort of element of our society thinking a bit about stuff like Topshop and Ivy Park and they're obviously aimed towards a sort of younger demographic how much of that do you think is detrimental or beneficial to our long-term wellness you know well it's tricky like last night I was walking through Shoreditch with my fiance and I was like it was Wednesday night at nine on a beautiful night out and for the first time in as long as I can remember I actually was seeing so many people in workout gear not at the pub, but really like walking around in their workout gear with huge bottles of water and whatnot. I was like, oh my God, this is East London. And look at what's happening on a Wednesday night. So really it is becoming a huge trend. Um, You see all these beauty and health bloggers telling people to go vegan and not drink and work out and yoga is the new kind of like pastime. And I think that's phenomenal in terms of awareness and keeping our minds and bodies healthy. However, we really felt like we needed to introduce eco-active wear because what is the point of doing all of these like healthy workouts and whatnot if the things that you were working out in are inherently toxic, made of polyester, which is nearly all petroleum, essentially oil. And, you know, you also will get rid of them after not too long of wearing them because workout gear is not made to last. Um, and that ends up in landfill. And as I said, polyester it takes about 700 years to break down so 
what you know it, it's really at odds with one another so we felt the need to really look into eco-activewear as a solution to this epidemic of bad activewear um as much as we want to encourage healthy living yeah there's got to be a kind of holistic approach to that and that does include what you're working out in because there's also um it seeps into your skin and things like that so there's also so many different layers of like where it's made but also physically on yourself you know like people are looking more towards organic beauty products and really considering like their environment and themselves and others around them it's kind of Exactly. And there's like those things that absorb sweat in the clothes now. I mean, those are actually carcinogenic. What's wrong with a little bit of sweat? You know, honestly, do you want to come back from playing an hour long football match? I mean, my fiance did this at one point and literally there was no sweat on him because his clothes had absorbed it all. And I was just like, that cannot be right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Thinking about ourselves, <laughs> we love shopping. It makes us feel good. It taps into our self worth, and also, you know, we've just said it. It's a big trend, and kind of it, it's how other people view us and mm-hmm. self expression and things. How do you tap into this kind of self worth without actually exploiting it as a retailer? So, you know, how do you approach your marketing and and that kind of thing? We always wanted to approach marketing in a way that made consumers feel. Um, a little bit more educated. I think in fashion, traditionally, the whole thing has been like, look at this pretty picture of this famous model and aspire to be like that and just buy it because it's beautiful and she's beautiful and there's this idyllic image put in front of you and like your life could be that on that beach with that man if you buy that dress. Um, And I think what we've wanted to do is actually deconstruct that a bit more and be like, well, why? Why do you want to buy that? You're not Gigi Hadid, nor should you want to be, really. Um, and to educate people about why they want to buy things. And I think just looking at a pretty image, yes, there's something very important about that. And we've always made sure our imagery was beautiful because of that. But at the same time, we wanted things to go a bit deeper in terms of our marketing. And I think consumers have been, you know, made out to be ignorant by a lot of fashion companies and we really wanted to empower our consumers to think about things and and understand why they would buy the clothes that they do and not just take things at face value so behind our marketing as much as we've made it beautiful and desirable as you would do in a luxury sphere we've also you know seeded in educational content um you know a little bit more provocative kind of things and I hope that we do more of that in the Mm. future and giving people a choice and the understanding and, and not taking them as being naive, really. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, without the same resources uh, as Farfetch, Netta Porter, mm-hmm. people like that, what have you learned from them? But also what advantage does being smaller give you over someone like that? <laughs> um, looking at them, I'm like, oh, my God, if we had those budgets, we'd rule the world. Um, r- truly, it- it's quite phenomenal. We worked with somebody who was at Mr. Porter for a while and hearing about the kind of money that they were throwing at anything from editorial to Google AdWords um, was just astronomical and not on the sphere that we can compete with. So I think where our competitive um, edge comes is really from probably the realness of who we are. And I think when we have customers, they become quite loyal. We've got 50% repeat customers, which is actually really good for a startup. Um, Because I think people start 
looking at our editorial content and our social media and the sustainability of our garments, which is right on the product pages. And I think it's very, very simple, hopefully to digest. And then people are like, oh, well, I know that I can get that there. Um, so I would say really, it's just about authenticity for us. Your sort of website's a very easy journey. You know what you're getting yourself in for. You don't have to search too much. It's, yeah. you know, simply and beautifully laid out. And I think that makes a real difference when you perhaps don't have so much um, product. So, yeah. for example, one of, you know, ASOS's biggest issues is that you can't find their products. So they try and come up with initiatives, how to search for products, how to like yeah. curate an editorial. And, yeah. you know, by its nature, it's never going to be easy for them. Whereas you guys have got a very... Um, concise sort of selection on your website and it just it really helps exactly. people I think oh that's good um, to hear <laughs> yeah no it definitely does um thinking about us in context to the rest of the world so Nordic American and Australian brands appear to be ahead of the sustainable mm -hmm. curve with Europe catching up slowly um why do you think this is do you think it's got any relation to do with Europe focusing so much on the provenance of clothing so made in Italy made in mm. Britain and having that traditional craftsman element to their story rather than about sustainability and, and luxury I think that's a huge part but I also think so if you look at where for instance I'm American and if you look at where sustainable fashion is erupting in the states it's really on the coast it's in new york and it's in la and you know the the entirety of the west coast really and i think that has a lot to do and i'd say the same with australia with the fact that climate change is there i think we're quite lucky in europe and that we've been shielded from it thus far we're seeing some kind of crazy weather patterns but for instance you know one of my best girlfriends in la just had to take up her entire lawn because all of her grass died and the water has been rationed in LA now and she had to plant it with cacti, you know, and she's like, no, climate change is here. Like we don't get to ignore this anymore. And living on the water as you do there, I think there's a real kind of, you're just in tune with nature and you're seeing those changes. And when I was in Australia, I was like, you know, the hole in the ozone layer is right above Sydney and you can't go outside without putting on loads of SPF. So Yes, I think when faced with these things, it's like, well, we, we can't not produce sustainably. I think there's an imperative nature there that we don't suffer from yet in Europe. And I think that is actually almost detrimental, um, even though we're very lucky to be living in someplace so sheltered. I guess we spend most of our time inside rather than outside. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah exactly. Compared. At least in London, you know, when it's prone to raininess. Mm. And, and I think in the Nordic countries, they're just... Oh God, they're just forward thinking, really. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because they're small, if it's because, you know, they've always been that way. Um, but yeah, when you go to Copenhagen and you see something like 80% of the workforce bicycling to work, and it just makes sense. The city is cleaner. You can breathe easier. People are fitter. People are happier getting to work when they cycle, you know, and they haven't been shoved underground or in a bus um, or, you know, stuck in traffic in their car. It, it, it's almost bizarre how we are so far behind the curve in those senses but also also our lives are so stressful because of it and like yeah. the commute and everything you were saying before yeah um with that how do you you know thinking about the stress and, and all the different elements of running a business um how do you actually rebalance and recharge yourself <laughs> um well I do do yoga which I find is very helpful but oddly something that has become a bit of a tradition is my fiance and I go to the farmer's market every Sunday and 
I swear to God, I know this sounds so lame, but it's what I look forward to the most is, is literally waking up and strolling over to Angel and just spending an hour, hour and a half, like, you know, with the farmers and picking out food for the week and looking at all the fresh vegetables and maybe buying some plants. It's, it's this very therapeutic time for me to connect back with people that, you know, are, are doing something really proactive towards, you know, in this case food, but also thinking about what I'm going to cook and, and using fresh ingredients. And yeah, that's like one of my favorite parts of the week. It's really weird. It's setting yourself up for the week and everything. Exactly. And I've really gotten into cooking because what I realized was working in sustainable fashion and then eating out all the time or, you know, eating out of season was really, you know, not in line with what I was doing. Um, so it's been a real pleasure to start cooking actually, and really thinking about that, you know, and it was a little hard in the winter when you'd go and be like, okay, so kale and carrots are on the menu (laughs) every day this week. But, you know, now getting into spring, it's quite phenomenal what we grow here in the UK. Um, and the farmers who are so committed to, to this, like, you know, movement of slow food and organic food. And to be honest with you, it's really not that much more expensive. And you get everything and it's not in plastic. It's like, you know, you shove a bunch of carrots and celery and lettuce in your bag and you get it home and you haven't used any plastic, which for me is phenomenally great. And because you care about it, you don't throw it away quite so quickly. Well, (laughs) we eat it, you know, it's like we come up with menu plans and we eat it because that's another thing. Food waste is just Mm. when you think of all the starving people in the world, I just cannot justify putting things in my fridge and then not eating them. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) So what is next for Reeve on Vert? So really exciting. I think we're actually in the midst of starting our own brand, which um, we've kind of come to the conclusion of wanting to create an essentials wardrobe, which will reflect, you know, those everyday items that a woman needs to start her journey into sustainability. I think we've talked so much. Kind of entry pieces, Exactly, you know, and I think we all wear pretty much the same thing you know some of us are real fashionistas but you know I had a totally manic month where I went away every weekend and I just got into the habit of putting the same things on my carry-on it was structured black leggings some slouchy v-necks and black white and gray you know a like oversized cardigan and a slip dress and I would just kind of mix and match those pieces and I realized that not any of them were from Revolver which was a shame I was like oh god we don't have any of these things um So Natasha and I have been really inspired to actually create our own line and make it sustainable to the way that we want to. Um, So that will be the next big thing, hopefully launching next year. I was going to just say, have you got a timeline for that? Because obviously making it sustainable. Yeah. Oh, it takes a lot. Oh, the research has been insane. So it's looking like March 2018. Exciting. I know. (laughs) I know. We never saw ourselves as designers. So stay tuned. Um, But I think it should be a good thing. Um, just going back a little bit, you've just mentioned your own personal style. Does that, um, change day to day? Has it, you know, has it been always the same and how has it changed since launching your own business? So I'd say growing up in America, my, my style's gone through three phases. Teenage me in the mall in America, consuming an insane amount of clothing that actually meant nothing to me. But back then I'm sure my style was quite outlandish, you know, my father shielded his eyes when I came down the stairs kind of thing. Then I moved to Paris and I would say it became much more tailored and sophisticated, but I still was consuming quite a bit. Um, just kind of getting into that French girl style. And then finally coming to London and working in sustainability, I think I've identified, 
who I really am, which is someone that likes quite nice things, but not loads of them. Um, so long as I have some, you know, silk tops and black jeans and high heels, a few great coats that I adore and have a bit of color in them. You quite know. sort of London dressing in a way, because it has to be day, you know, day exactly. to night as well. It, it has yeah. to be day to night. That's it. it. Running your own business, it's like you've got to be able to fit in everything and then go out for drinks at the end of the day. So it's really about having a versatile wardrobe. But I've been shocked at how much I've been able to throw away and care nothing about. Yeah. It's it's horrifying. I'm totally just doing that at the moment at home. I've got bags and bags of stuff. And people seem to donate to me because they think I'm going to put it on eBay for them and things like that yeah. and I'm like I've just got to get rid of this stuff you know? I mean it's gotten to a but, point where now charity shops are like turning people away because they're like we have so much clothing we don't need yeah. anymore and then it gets sent to Africa because we're like oh let's just shift it onto the Africans yeah, obviously we don't need want it, it. Yeah. and they're like we don't want this yeah you know it's it's actually quite insulting stuff yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> oh, like a rickety falling apart t-shirt in neon yellow like no thank you <laughs> So, so I'm really, really hoping that we're all getting to a point where we're starting to realize that like having clothes that are meaningful is the way forward. They should be your friends, you know, really. Well, exactly. (laughs) Now I look in my closet and I can definitively say, I really love all of those pieces Mm. and I reach for them time and time again. Whereas before I had so much in there that just, you know, I maybe wore once a year. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah, once a year is not a friend you need to see, is it? No, it's really not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for today. Yeah, Thanks for your time. Thank yeah. you for um, you know delving into these issues. It's so great to have people so interested in the space. Cora Hiltz's background in environmental politics to understanding how women want to consume luxury fashion. Alongside Natasha Tucker, she has created a business which has broken down the barriers that have in the past held back the ethical clothing industry. She lives in a world where the odd glass of rosé doesn't go miss, nor does she compromise style for ethics. Luckily for us, her world is also accessible to all, online at Revonver. Come on the journey with us, keep listening, subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud, join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital, Twitter at Digital Neon and our website blackneondigital.com.